Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. Our current teaching series is on Philippians, a letter written to a church for whom Paul had a clear affection about how to find the joy of the Lord amidst whatever comes our way. It felt like a poignant moment to stop and see this stuff, and we hope it helps. Good morning. I am aware that Ed's head, nor my head, are very likely the first heads to have been talking at you from a screen this week, so I'm going to keep this brief and simple, but I do think it's very important. Whatever we may be feeling about what, as of Friday afternoon when I'm recording this, is looking increasingly likely that President Trump has been voted out of office, I think it's fair to say that this week has taken us all to extreme levels of stress and anxiety. At a time when apparently this is true, six out of ten Americans can't imagine being more stressed than they already are. And that was before this election week even started. I know that neuroscience isn't everyone's jam, but in case you wanted to know why you've been distracted, irritable and unusually impatient with partners, flatmates and, let's say, children who insist on talking to you and needing you when you're quite clearly trying to watch the news, it's because experts believe that our uh, brain circuitry hasn't actually developed the ability to distinguish between what this waiting and uncertainty and powerlessness makes us feel um, in comparison to the fear of definite threat. So it's like the blaring alarm of the saber-toothed tiger standing in front of us, which of course is very far from the truth. And as I was writing this introduction, I realised it had been about seven minutes uh, since I'd last looked at the news, so I, I, of course, needed to go back and check the, you know, developments. Um, I tuned into a major network news show <laughs> to just have three men who were supposedly discussing the idea uh, uh, of how secure the counting system is, just yelling at each other, all three of them, at the same time, nobody listening, every single word completely unintelligible. It was like an art installation from the future, just called 2020. But if we believe that these systems are things we should be able to trust, political systems, legal systems, information systems and electoral systems, what hasn't been thrown into question in that regard this week? Counting, recounting, stop the counting. Can we even trust maths anymore? But can I just stop to make the point at this minute that for any of us for whom this inability to trust the things that we should be able to trust feels new, let's just stop to think about how privileged a group of people this naturally makes us. For people of colour and disenfranchised people across this country and everywhere else, not being able to trust the systems of power um, over them is nothing new at all. But all of this poisonous division and backbiting and misinformation and lying and anger and grief. Has God ever seen anything worse? I mean, of course he has. None of this is new to God. And his answer was always the gospel. And his plan was always the church. That's really the only thing I want to talk about this morning. How we, you and I, in the middle of all of this, need to remember the plan. 
which is convenient because it's exactly what Paul was writing to the Philippians about 2,000 years ago to a church who, in the face of persecution, had fallen into conflict and division and had forgotten it. Ben and Ed have covered a lot of this background over the last two weeks, but just in case you missed that. Despite being more than a mere thousand kilometres away from Rome, Philippi had been named a Roman colony, which meant Philippian soil was as good as Roman soil. Philippian citizens were given full and legal Roman citizenship. To be a Philippian surrounded by Greeks was a great thing. It was to be important and set apart, and it was something that the city took great pride in. Rome, uh, sorry, Paul, when he's writing this, is in prison in Rome and he's writing a letter to this church for whom he clearly and famously has enormous affection. It was made up of some of his closest friends and financial backers. And he's writing because he's heard that they, under the pressure of persecution from Rome, have got embroiled in some sort of big internal conflict and split. And because of the whole prison thing, he's been unable to go there um, himself to sort it out. But what is very, very clear as is always clear with Paul, is that despite all of their specialness to him and his no doubt understanding of what's going on, it is always the cause of the gospel that Paul is concerned with the most. By which I mean what? That despite all these people he knows and loves and despite all the stuff that's going on with them and the legitimate heartache that they're facing, their function as a church, as a body, is what they need to be called back to. So that this revolutionary new movement, this new way, would continue its work and its example of bringing together men and women, slave and free, Jew and Greek, in the love of Christ. Amanda is going to read for us now. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Rome had its own lord thing going on with Emperor Nero. Uh, being a citizen would have meant a sort of cultish level daily swearing an oath to his lordship type deal. And because Christians had another lord, Nero didn't have a lot of love for them. Um, a couple of years after this letter was written, a massive fire broke out in Rome, for which he, with no justification whatsoever, blamed on the Christians and uh, tortured ruthlessly and murdered a load of them in the amphitheatre. He was also the one that murdered Peter and Paul. And so the church wasn't doing brilliantly in uh, Roman territory. 
we don't know any details of what was happening at the church in Philippi in terms of this persecution, but because of the suffering chat and the fact that Paul uh, mentions the same struggle you saw I had, it's just quite easy to assume that it was probably meaning um, violence and uh, imprisonment. A little word on persecution, though. Paul's uh, language about their adversaries was intended to encourage people who stood as a tiny, isolated throng amid a raging sea of pagan antagonism. And I read my share of commentary on um, this, comparing it to the persecution, persecution of the Christian voice in America today. And I think we were probably at this minute to just do quite well to remember what persecution actually looks like. It doesn't look like being mocked by the liberal media. It doesn't look like having our moral virtues or the legitimacy of our faith claims questioned. Not while we're free to worship, uh, pandemic restrictions notwithstanding, free to protest and free to share our faith. Persecution looks like fear of arrest, violence, real jail time, torture and death. And it's happened throughout the history of the church in different times and places. And Paul is very clear that a special grace is reserved for anyone suffering for the gospel like that. But it is not what we have here in post-Christian America. I know that we all know this, but I just thought it was worth reminding us. In addition to persecution, as I said, Paul has also heard that two prominent members of the church in Philippi named Euodia and Syntyche, Syntyche were in conflict again. We don't know anything about the details, but it was clear that it had infected the rest of the church, and this is Paul's major concern. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves is from the Greek polituiste. One of your pastors speaks fluent Greek, the other does not, okay? But it's worth noting because uh, it carries a deeper significance than the English conveys. It's actually got um, deliberate political undertones. It's like behave as a citizen. And Paul is using it here to wordplay with the Philippians because as proud citizens of Rome, they need to remember that they are citizens of somewhere else altogether. Not to deny their Roman citizenship, but never to confuse it with, with being a citizen of the place that they now really belong. A sentiment that maybe uh, whatever we're feeling as American citizens right now in terms of how proud we feel or how hopeful we feel, we do very well to remember this week. We are not primarily earthly citizens, American citizens. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of a different thing, a different cause, a different way. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit is actually more like stand firm in one mind, like side by side in harmony. There's been a lot of speculation about just what the disharmony um, was between these two women um, and the split that they were causing, but it doesn't seem that difficult for us to imagine, does it? The idea that we might find it hard to agree, and I'm just using my imagination here, but that we could take one piece of our identity as Christians, the defense of one course, one single issue, and make it the sword on which we die, the fight that is worth having. Bread may not be the most politically divided church in the whole world, but let's make no mistake, we have passionate voters from both sides of the aisle in our beloved midst. 
and it's kind of inevitable at this point in time, isn't it, that we all have loved ones, friends, family with whom we do not agree. And the fact is that in going into this week, this nation is so bitterly divided that whatever happened, half of it was going to be utterly devastated by the outcome. And I think that by adding Christian claims to any of this political and party division, it just makes it all so much more bitter and painful to all of us. And I am not by any means belittling the massively important issues at stake here, issues so close to many of our hearts, racial justice, climate justice, immigration justice, social justice, let alone the nature of godly leadership. But let us please remember that there is no Christian party in politics and there never has been. We are always going to see things differently. This is always going to be the case as long as we are earthly humans. But because of Jesus, we stand, as Paul puts it, firm, steadfast, with unflinching courage, and we commit to harmony. We can discuss things, debate things, question policies, question logic, propose solutions. And we don't need to engage with this level of poisonous division that is playing out in front of us. In fact, the only way we can bring this back from the brink on which we now stand is to listen. The way that Jesus listened. Do you ever notice that he hardly ever answers a question directly? directly. He turns it back with another question. To listen. To question. Jesus was the most right of anyone who ever lived. And yet more than anything, he listened. So let's do the same this week. Let's flee all human fleshly instinct to gloat and to celebrate anything that happens as we watch what looks like the political balance be redressed slightly over the coming months. We condemn evil, but we show people love. We show grace and mercy and kindness. This is the only way bridges can be built back from here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It was always supposed to be the way that we did this, the way that we loved each other, that was supposed to make us known to other people. It was what Jesus said the night that he washed his disciples' feet and that was ultimately arrested. It was his final instruction to them. About a hundred years after Paul wrote the set of the Philippians, the philosopher named Athenagoras pleaded with Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius to stop persecuting Christians. And in doing so, he asked, do you know anyone else of any other philosopher who have so buried their hearts as to love their enemies instead of hating them, to pray for those who persecute them? Here in the church, you will find unlettered people tradesmen and old women who, though unable to express in words the advantages of their teaching, demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. For they do not release speeches, but evidence good deeds. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbours as themselves. This is who we are, church family. 
a group of individuals who are filled with the Spirit, filled with the power and love of God like a fire in our belly and a tank full of gas, who show up together despite our differences, willing to show love for one another through putting the well-being of others before ourselves. This is how we're supposed to be known. This way of looking after each other. This way of going after each other, going after those who need to be found, who need to be protected and defended and included. This past Wednesday night, I would have done pretty much anything to have got out of my obligation to host an online Zoom course on um, hearing, God's call, uh, hearing God's voice. Because I'd spent the night uh, before, like most of everyone, staying up almost all night and then I'd stay glued to the TV most of the day. And by the evening I was done, completely spent, empty, nothing to give. But as so often is the case with these things, it ended up being one of the most exhilarating nights of my church leading life. In part because it is just mind-blowing to see the Holy Spirit do what we know he does over Zoom. To fill people with power and touch them visibly on their bodies in ways that we can see the way that he does just as like it is in person. But not just that, and that is bonkers, the Zoom thing but also because there were 35 or so people on the call and everyone was there to do this, to ask the Holy Spirit to meet us in power. And we watched people jump in, some of whom had absolutely no experience with the prophetic, making themselves available, taking risks. And actually it does involve a, a bit of taking a risk of just daring to go for it for no other reason than to bless each other such as I have, I give thee. And for the few people that had never done it before, what felt so powerful was just knowing what it is to believe that God wants to use this like this, to see that happen for the first time, that he wants to and he will use us if we ask him to bless other people. And it's just one of the most life-giving, faith-filling things to see it happen. And this is what I believe against all of the odds of this pandemic reality right now. It feels so wildly exciting to invite you into today. Join church. If not this bunch of ill-equipped, ragtag, faith-filled saints, then find another one. The plan was always and still is the church. Never to protect our moral position. And this is not about bread becoming bigger or having an increased profile or be a famous church that does blah, blah with whatever celebrity, for goodness sake. Be a part of this, this people who want to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly together where everyone is welcome, where we are known to be a people who bring ourselves to put others first. We offer our perspective, our gifts, our passions to this not because we get the credit or the profile or we feel important, but because there is nothing more exciting than to give yourself to the pursuit of the kingdom of God. And we don't all have to do the same thing or do it the same way because we aren't all the same and we don't all have the same things to bring. But bring yourself, bring your gifts, bring your musical talent if you're a worshipper, bring your kind eyes if you are a welcomer, bring your strong arms if you are called to justice.
join the new diversity and integration task force. You can get in touch if you'd like to do that. Please do it if this is what you're passionate about. We have a group of people who are passionate about uh, racial justice and are passionate about how we as a church can address what needs addressing and to become the anti-racist, one in Christ, redemptive healing, reinstative justice bringers that we want to be. Bring new things that we don't have going on yet. Let's talk about them, but bring yourself. We are one body, many parts, but we only make any of this work when we know who Jesus is and what he is like. The passage uh, after the one that I spoke from today is a very famous bit of liturgy. It's probably um, an early Christian hymn that Paul is quoting here. And it's known to be sort of one of the best summaries of what Jesus was like. And it's about one thing, humility. Never to be confused with false modesty or making ourselves low. Jesus-like humility is actually the proper estimation of self. The stance of a creature before the creator, utterly dependent and trusting, utterly willing to bring our whole selves to this. I'm going to read it now. In our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's meditate on that now in all the uncertainty that is likely still in front of us. Jesus knew exactly who he was and where he was from and where he was going. Boldness and strength in who we are is always at the base of Christ-like humility. But let us stop and see him there now on the throne, the King reigning not surprised by any of this. Prince of Peace, friend, here to meet you now. Come Holy Spirit. All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain, Dip your heart in the stream of life Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away In the waves of His mercy His deep cries out to Come, Lord.
and all who 